Section three of Edward the Third by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. First decade, Chapter one, from the King's accession to the fall of Mortimer, Part two. Pursuit was of course hopeless, and Edward had to withdraw unsuccessful from his first expedition, which certainly deserved better success for the Scotch were truce-breakers and aggressors, and he, though outwitted and worsted in tactics, had the best of the rights of the quarrel. It would be well if the same could be said for him in the long subsequent struggle, wherein the Scots were fighting bravely for their independence under a king of their choice, and Edward was putting forth the whole strength of England to force upon them a Balliol instead of a Bruce. The odium of the failure fell chiefly on Mortimer, by whose secret influence it was thought that the English leaders were kept back from a more vigorous and daring course of action. The Scotch had been living at free quarters in the enemy's country during the campaign, but to the English the expedition was as costly as it was unsuccessful. Besides the expenses of his own troops, Edward owed fourteen thousand pounds, a sum equivalent to at least two hundred thousand pounds in our day, to Sir John of Hainault for his cooperation in the campaign, and now began to feel for the first time the want of money which beset him so frequently and drove him to such questionable expedients in later years. He first borrowed of the Bardi, or Longobardi, a Florentine banking company settled in London, who gave their name to Lombard Street. When they failed in 1345, an event which Villani tells us plunged all Florence in distress, and which was chiefly owing to Edward's unpaid debt to them of nine hundred thousand gold florins, he betook himself to the brethren of the Hanseatic Steelyard, an association of German traders who had established themselves on the banks of the Thames in the reign of Henry III. By way of security on the present occasion, he gave the Bardi an order on the collectors of customs at Sandwich and Southampton, and directed his treasurer to pawn the royal jewels if the amount in his hands proved insufficient to pay his debt to Sir John of Hainault. The next care of the government was to bring about, if possible, a permanent peace with Scotland. After some preliminary negotiations, a parliament was summoned to meet at York, for thus early in his career the young king began the system of taking the advice of his parliament on all important questions. This was a remarkable characteristic of his reign, and doubtless one of the secrets of his success in carrying with him the support and sympathy of his subjects in many of his less defensible undertakings. On the present occasion he wrote to Robert Bruce, as by the grace of God the illustrious king of the Scots, to say that, acting on the advice of the prelates, nobles, earls, barons, and commons of his kingdom, he offered to enter into peace with him, abandoning all claims over the realm of Scotland. This overture was accepted, and a treaty of peace signed by both kings and confirmed by Parliament on April twenty-fourth, 1328. The importance of this treaty can hardly be overrated. It was a virtual abandonment of the claims founded on Edward I's conquest of Scotland in 1290, and an acknowledgment of the legitimacy of the Bruce dynasty. The principal agreements were as follows. 
that the English king should give up at once and forever his feudal claim to the overlordship of Scotland, and restore the ragman rolls, consisting of thirty-five skins of parchment, on which Balliol and other Scottish nobles had signed their names to a document admitting that claim. That the sacred stone on which the kings of Scotland had been crowned at Schoon and other national heirlooms taken away by Edward I should be given back, and on the part of the Scotch, that the estates of certain nobles who had forfeited them by taking the English side should be restored, that Bruce should pay twenty thousand pounds in three annual installments to England, and finally, that his son David, the heir of the Scottish crown, then in his sixth year, should be betrothed to the Princess Joan of England, King Edward's sister, a child of about the same age. The above stipulations were in the main faithfully carried out, and David was affianced four months later to Joan. But dangerous riots prevented the removal of the coronation stone, which is still to be seen in Westminster Abbey, and a delay of disastrous consequences, as will presently appear, took place in the restoration of the forfeited estates. The balance of advantage was so much in favor of Scotland that the peace, regarded as humiliating and all but treasonous by the English, immensely aggravated the unpopularity of Mortimer and the Queen, who were supposed to be its authors, and for whose private use it was suspected that the money payment to be made by the Scottish king was intended. It was during the settlement of the stipulations of this treaty, in the autumn of 1327, that the murder of Edward II took place at Berkeley Castle. It is tolerably certain that there was at the time no public suspicion of foul play, but when on his trial in 1330, Mortimer was accused of having commanded the king's assassination, he admitted the truth of the charge. Shortly after the return from the Scotch campaign, an embassy was sent to Count William of Hainaut to demand his daughter Philippa in marriage for King Edward, to whom she was already affianced. He and his betrothed were within the prohibited degrees, being both great-grandchildren of Philip III of France, but the Pope having granted a dispensation, the future queen set sail under the escort of her uncle Sir John and the commissioners sent from England to fetch her. The marriage took place at York on January 24, 1328. The bridegroom was between fifteen and sixteen, and the bride only fourteen years of age. But the pleasures and cares of real life began earlier and ended earlier in those days than in ours. It would appear that in the Middle Ages the deaths of a great portion of the English nobility, even when due to natural causes, took place under the age of forty, and their eldest sons, though commonly the offspring of very early marriages, frequently became wards of the crown by reason of their minority. The black prince was born in his father's eighteenth year, and fought the Battle of Crecy when he himself was but sixteen years of age. Within a fortnight after the royal wedding, Charles the Fair, the last of the Capetian kings of France, died, an event full of disaster for that country and for England. No sooner had it occurred than Edward III put forth a presumptuous and unfounded claim to the French crown, which involved the two countries in a war of a century's duration 
and sowed the seeds of a national antipathy which has not yet ceased to bear poisonous fruit. As the war, however, did not break out for ten years later, it may be as well to reserve the account of this claim and its consequences till that part of the history has been reached. A more immediate and menacing danger arose from the ambition, hitherto successful, and the tyranny, hitherto unchecked and unpunished, of the infamous Mortimer and the still more infamous Isabel. Their guilty relations to one another had now become notorious, and Mortimer, sensible of the growing hatred of the people as well as of the nobles, determined to surround himself with a bodyguard of armed retainers to overawe Parliament, and by a high-handed exhibition of power to give the barons a visible proof that the greatest and noblest in the land were not secure against his vengeance. Edward had summoned a Parliament to meet at New Sarum, now Salisbury, and the nobles had been forbidden in the king's name to attend it with an armed retinue, an illegal but not uncommon custom in those times. Mortimer, in defiance of this prohibition, appeared at Salisbury with a large armed force, and the princes of the blood, the earls of Kent, Norfolk, and Lancaster, hearing of this on their way and suspecting his designs, stopped short at Winchester. When the rest of the Parliament was sitting in debate, Mortimer broke into their chamber and threatened them with a loss of life and limb if they attempted to dispute his pleasure. As soon as the session was over, a confederacy was formed by the barons, 1329, with whom the Archbishop of Canterbury and the bishops of London and Winchester took part, to rid themselves of a tyranny now become insupportable. They met at St. Paul's and issued a manifesto setting forth the charges against Mortimer, which were only too notorious and well-founded, and everything promised success. But at the critical moment, Kent and Norfolk lost their courage, faltered and withdrew, leaving Lancaster unsupported. Mortimer easily persuaded the young king that it was against the royal authority the Confederates were plotting, and it was only through the intercession of the archbishop that they were allowed to make submission and save their lives at the sacrifice of half their lands. Then Mortimer, elated by his success and wishing to remove a man whose amiability popularity and influence made him a peculiarly odious rival, determined to compass the death of the Earl of Kent, the king's uncle, by practicing on the simplicity of his character and drawing him into the net of high treason. With this object in view, he caused a rumor to be circulated that King Edward II was not really dead, but confined and hidden away in Corfe Castle in Dorsetshire. The earl, deceived by this report, went himself to Corfe Castle to make inquiries. The governor, a creature of Mortimer's, refused him admission to his brother, but promised that if the earl would put what he wished to say in writing, he would himself convey the letter to the king. This letter, which of course was soon in the hands of Mortimer, contained all that was necessary for his treacherous purpose. But the Earl of Kent had committed himself still more deeply by consulting the Pope at Avignon, and receiving his sanction to a plan for releasing the deposed king. It so happened that a Parliament was sitting at Winchester in 1330, when the fatal letter came into Mortimer's hands, and as his opponents had been afraid to take their seats therein, it will easily be understood 
that when the Earl of Kent was arraigned before it and charged with a treason which he could not deny, he was straightway convicted and sentenced to lose his head. Mortimer, fearing lest the king should relent towards his uncle, hurried on the execution which took place the following day, but not before the evening, for so great was the general resentment against the malice and treachery of which the earl was a victim that no one could be induced to undertake the office of executioner, till at last a convict was found in the marshalsea willing to carry out the cruel sentence on condition that his own life should be spared. End of section 3